Well, good morning. Uh, thanks for being here. If you're joining us online, thank you for joining us. So um, I don't think I was that different than most college students. Um, if I was up at 6 or 6.15, it was because I was going to the bathroom and I was going right back to bed. And I think that's how college students roll. Um, Saturdays were my day. We'd go to the game, but it was my day. But if you were a member or are a member of the Husker Marching Band, that all changes. Um, you're up early in the morning to practice. Saturdays, it's, it's not your day. All day, you're given to whatever the marching band does. So you make a commitment to the band. They take your priorities and reorder them. Well, I say that to say, uh, suggest that when we make a commitment to Christ, same thing happens. He works in such a way in our heart that our priorities get impacted, shaken up. And I want to draw that out a little bit today. So if you've got a Bible, if you turn it into 1 Samuel chapter 20, we're going to go all the way through this chapter uh, wrestling with the question or putting the question forward, how will following God impact our priorities? How will following God impact our priorities? If you haven't been with us, uh, it was mentioned we're in a series termed uh, Reliant. It's kind of focusing on our need to quit being self-reliant and relying on God. And, and to kind of lead us through that is the nation of Israel. They're in the transition. They're God's chosen people from a loose federation of states to a monarchy. Uh, they have the mistaken notion in this book that if they could just get a king and they'd be like every other country, they could be secure. Uh, God says through the prophet Samuel, that's a bad idea, but they don't listen and they want their king. So God says, I'll give you your king and maybe you'll learn your lesson. So the first king is a guy named Saul. When Saul is anointed as king, the wording is very clear. You don't have complete autonomy here. Your kingship un operates under my authority. Saul didn't get that message. He missed the memo. On two different occasions, he flat out disobeyed God when confronted. His choice was to rationalize or to blame others. And God said, I'm moving on. He anointed a second king. His name's David. And it set up a messy situation. You had a sitting king and a king in waiting. Now, I don't think Saul realized that David had been anointed by the prophet Samuel. But he has seen David's stock rise. Happened particularly when the Philistines, they were fighting the Philistines, they're kind of the ubiquitous enemy. They brought a champion out named Goliath. David dropped him with one stone, and, it, and his renown has grown. Saul threatened. And last week, we saw Saul hurl his spirit at David and miss. David runs to his home, where he's married to uh, Saul's daughter. Uh, Saul chases him there. He escapes. He goes to uh, Ramah, where Samuel, the yeah, Samuel the prophet is and lives in the shepherd's hut, but Saul has sources and he chases David there. And so the chase is on. And that's where we pick it up, 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 1. It says, Then David fled from Naoth, that's the shepherd's huts, in Ramah, and came and said to Jonathan, Now Jonathan is Saul's son, What have I done? What is my iniquity and what is my sin before your father that he is seeking my life? Man, what is the deal? He's saying, I have just followed God. And I got this madman bringing all the resources of the nation of Israel trying to end my life. That ain't right. That ain't fair. Jonathan, what have I done? Verse 2, he, Jonathan, said to it, far be it, far from it. You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing either great or small without disclosing it to me. 
So why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. So I was like, no, 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 no. If, if my dad was going to do something, he'd, he would have told me. And in fact, if we look back at Chan, 1 Samuel 19, you'll see Saul give his word to his son Jonathan. No, I'm not going to end David's life. But Saul's not a stable man. He's got a mood disorder. <laughs> and he swings. And David knows that. David's experienced that because at least twice... David, when he was serving Saul, uh, Saul has thrown his spirit in an attempt to end his life. David's well aware this is not a stable man. Verse 3, yet David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I found favor in your sight. And he said, Do not let Jonathan know this, or he will be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is hardly a step between me and death. Uh, David said, I'm this close to dying. Why? Because I got the king of Israel... And all the army after me. I need your help. If I'm going to live. Verse 4. Then Jonathan said to David. Whatever you say. I will do for you. So Jonathan said. I'm at your disposal. So they concoct a little plan. In verses 5 through 7. To kind of test. What, what is Saul's view of David. How, how's, how's he feeling about it? So here we go. So Saul said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I ought to sit down to eat with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field until the third evening. So I'm not going to show up. Instead, I'm going to go hide in the field. Uh, if your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly ask, leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, because it's the yearly sacrifice there for a whole family. If he says, it is good, he being Saul, your servant will be safe. But if he's very angry... Know that he has decided on evil. So we got this religious holiday. I should be there. I'm not going to show up. And we'll see how your dad responds. If he's cool with it, okay, then we're good. But if he responds angrily, then we'll know. He was planning on using that festival to end my life. Now, as I told you before, I, I, I don't write the Bible. I, I don't edit it. What I don't like here is David lies. Tell him I'm going to Bethlehem. Well, I'm really not. I'm going in the field. Why not just say I'm not going to show up? It's beyond the scope of this message to talk about ethics. But I do want you to keep this lie in mind and, and see if it works. See if it dissuades Saul from what he has planned. My suggestion is lying is never in our interest. So we'll see a little bit how that lie works. Verse 8. David speaking to Jonathan. He says, therefore, deal kindly with your servant. Now, he's calling... David's calling himself Jonathan's servant. So he's saying, you know, a servant is dependent on his master. For you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. Jonathan, I'm depending on you. Hey, look, if there's any iniquity in me, put me to death yourself. For why then should you bring me to your father? Look, if I'm deserving of death, let's do the deed right here. Jonathan, you do it. I'd rather you do it than your dad. Jonathan said, far be it from you. For if I should indeed learn that evil has been decided by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you about it? Then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? Okay, Jonathan, you're on my side. I'm good. How are you going to get the message to me? Verses 11, 13, Jonathan said, basically, I'll handle it. Jonathan said to David, come and let us go out into the field. So both of them went out to the field. Then Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness when I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if there's a good feeling toward David, shall I not then send to you and make it known to you? 
On the other hand, verse 13, if it please my father to do, harm, do you harm, may the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not make it known to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. And may the Lord be with you as he's been with my father. David, I'm going to stake my life on it. If I find out that my father plans evil, uh, may, may God do so to me if I don't let you know. I'm going to get it done. Verses 14 to 17, a little bit of an interlude. Jonathan says, hey, 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 you know, we could be parting ways. Just tell me this. When you become king, that you'll be kind to me and you'll be kind to my descendants. Well, why would he say that? When, when somebody steps up as king, it was common practice to get rid of the other family. Because you didn't want anybody else claiming the authority. So you just kind of executed them out of the way. Jonathan's saying, tell me you won't do that. You'll protect me and you'll protect my descendants. David said, I'm good. Verses 18 to 23 then is the plan. David, you go out in the field. I'm going to gather some intel. And then when I get my information, I'm going to shoot some arrows. I'm going to shoot three arrows. And I'm going to send a, a lad, a servant out there. And if I give him one set of instructions... You'll know you're good. And you'll be able to hear me. I'll call him out. I'll give you one set of instructions. You know you're good. If I give you a second set of instructions, it's bad. You need to split. So that's our code. That's how we're going to do it. I'll let you read that on your own. So now we're going to get to the festival, which is going to test everything. How does Saul respond when David doesn't show up? Verse 24. So David hid in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat as usual, the seat by the wall. Then Jonathan rose up, and Abner sat down by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul did not speak anything that day, for he thought, nah, it's an accident. He's not clean. Surely, he's not clean. So Saul's thinking, ah, yeah, he'll be here tomorrow. There was just some ritual cleanliness that's embedded in Israeli law. I won't go into it. Saul thinks, he'll, just a day, he'll be here tomorrow. So, so far, so good. I mean, Saul hasn't blown up, but, but we're wondering. Remember, we got three days. We're going to test this thing. So here we go on day two. And it came about the next day, the second day of the new moon, that David's place was empty. So Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has the son of Jesse, that's David, why has he, why has he not come to the meal, either yesterday or today? So here comes the lie. Uh, then Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem, for he said, please let me go, since our family is a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to attend. And now if I found favor in your sight, please let me get away that I may see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. David's hiding in the field, but the explanation is he went down to Bethlehem. You think this is going to dissuade Saul from his response? We're about to find out. I mean, did, did Saul have malice intended for David at the festival? Or is he good? Hey, he didn't show up. That's okay. Here we go. Verse 30. Then Saul's anger, okay, we got our answer. Then Saul's anger burned against Jonathan, and he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you're choosing the son of Jesse, that's David, first to your own shame, and the shame of your mother's nakedness? Whoa, 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 what's that about? Jonathan's in line to be king. Man, you're going to ascend to the throne, dude, when I die. But this David, I, I don't think Saul knows he's been anointed, but he knows it's David's stock on the rise. And his popularity is growing. He's going to be king. And Jonathan, if David's around, you ain't going to be king. Your loyalty to David is costing you 
personally. It's costing you position. It's costing you fame. It's costing you authority. Wake up. And then also, not only is it your shame, but it's your mother's nakedness. It's her shame. It's our family. We got a dynasty here, son. And this David's going to wreck it. So if you don't care about you, would you care about our family? That we could keep going in this thing. Verse 31, for as long as the son of Jesse lives in the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. So here's what Saul wants. Therefore now, send and bring him to me, for he must surely die. We clear on Saul's intentions. He wants David dead. And Jonathan, I know you've got the end. So let's just, so you can go on and we can go on. And Jonathan, what are you going to do? You're going to submit to your father or your heavenly father? Verse 32, but Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said to him, why should he be put to death? What has he done? Again, he's innocent. But remember, Saul's not a stable man. Reason's not going to fly with him. Then Saul hurled his spear, we've seen that before, at him to strike him down. So Jonathan knew that his father had decided to put David to death. Then Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and did not eat food on the second day of the new moon. For he was grieved over David because his father had dishonored him. And we started asking a question. How will following God impact our priorities? Old friends. <laughs> following God's going to reorder our priorities in a big way. You get serious about Jesus. I get serious about Jesus. It's going to impact our priorities. In a big way. Jesus himself modeled that, didn't he? He was at the comfort of heaven. That would be a priority to stay. But he left to come to sinful, ugly earth. Uh, he came as the son of God, fully God, fully human. But he, he chose to suspend some of those powers as, as the son of God. And then he was tried and convicted. I'll put the term in quotes intentionally as a common criminal. So you and I wouldn't have to be separated from God. That, that, that's, that's setting aside your priorities. Comfort, person, honor. <laughs> he was spit upon. He was beaten. Son of God. Yeah. Following God will, will reorder. It's going to transform. It's going to shake up our priorities. And it starts with self. Everything we hold dear is up for grabs. Like I came to Christ as a freshman in college, and I had come, there had been a lot of job instability in my family, and, and I came to get a good job. And, and pretty soon I was confronted with, you need to trust God ultimately with your stability. And I didn't, I'm not buying that at first, but over time I saw that, that makes sense. It was about two months in, and I was communicating with this gal from high school, and, and the guy who read me to the Lord said, you know, Andy, it's really biblical that you would just date because you ultimately marry someone who's following Jesus. And, and I thought, Dad, you, you don't need to be narrow in my field here. I'm not doing that well. But, you know, I, okay, I got that. And, and that was a good decision. God's priorities are for his glory and our abundance. But he's going to shake them up. And so I'm telling you, you get serious about Jesus, it's going to mess with your personal priorities. 
comfort, security, popularity. Second thing it's going to do, it's going to mess with your understanding and our understanding of family. Who are priority relationships? When Jesus was on earth, he was speaking. This is recorded in Matthew 12. And he, he, was, he was still speaking to the crowds. Behold, his mother and his brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. They, they want to get, talk to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling this said, Who, he's going to reorder things here, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? He's reshaking, reorienting relational priorities and stretching out hand towards his disciples, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. Not those folks who are outside, but those who are part of the family of God. In fact, Jesus' brothers wouldn't come to recognize him as the risen Savior until after his resurrection. Forever who does, for whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. We moved here 20 years ago, and I'm so glad we did. It's been a great place for us. But we're kind of outsiders. And one of the things that we see is the priority of family. And I think for the most part, that's a good thing. But occasionally, biological family can get in the way of spiritual family. And God is calling us to reorient priorities. Now, are you saying, Andy, if I, boy, if I miss church because I, you know, I went to my nephew's first communion or I went down to celebrate my mom's birthday? And No, 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 I'm not talking about one thing, but I'm talking in the scheme of things as we look Who's a priority? Who matters? Who gets our time? The family of God needs to rise to the top. So when we started church 2004, 2005, this couple started with us. And they moved to Lincoln specifically because she had a mother and a sister and her family who lived in Omaha. And they would get together for family meals. And they would often miss service. But pretty quickly they decided, you know, no, 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 no. We're, we're going to we're going to go to church with our family in Lincoln, spiritual family, and then we'll leave at noon and we'll get up there at 1, 1.15 or whatever it takes. Omaha. If you guys want to go ahead and eat before us, that's fine. We'll run through a drive-thru, but, but know that we're going to do this first because it's a priority. So I don't think it has to be either or, but it's I'm going to rethink a biological family in terms of the priority of my spiritual family. That mean I can never miss church, never do this. No, no, I'm not saying that. But big picture. Having said that, I will tell you that there are times that some of the things you value, your family will not accept. You heard me speak before. You know, I spent 15 years after I finished my master's at AM working with a campus ministry called Campus Crusade for Christ. My parents were never on board with that. So let me fast forward through those 15 years. I'm at my first senior pastor. We're down in Arizona. I'm about three months in. It's a little church, and my parents come to visit, and they're in the church, and it's a congregation of 50 or 60 people, and what I see is my mother has her sunglasses on. Now, we're a church with a roof over it, so there's no need. Nobody's got their sunglasses on here. That's good. There's no need to have your sunglasses on, and I'm giving the message, but the whole time I'm thinking, Mom, why are you wearing your sunglasses in church? So after I finish, I talk to my wife, who was sitting by her, and I said, Hope. She had her sunglasses on the whole time. And she said, yeah, Andy, your mom cried through the whole sermon. And when I finished, she said something to the effect, to hope, I had no idea. He could stand up in front of people and talk intelligently for 25 minutes. 
something like that. So that night, we're having a meal, and I think Chris was our only child at that time and put him down. And so my parents say, well, Andrew, we had no idea. We had no idea that, that you could stand up there like that. And, and you're only three months in. How did you? And I was at seminary. I said, well, you know, I had two quarters of preaching in seminary, and it was three semesters, uh, three sermons. So that's six. But I said, where I really got my training to preach was with Campus Crusade for Christ. I did this over 150 times. 25 of them, at least, were in Spanish, a second language. That's where I learned to do what you saw today. Oh, no, Andrew, that's not the same. I said, you're right, it's not. In fact, it was more difficult with college students because for the first three years, I, I, I would watch because I wasn't a director. And when the guy spoke too long or he was irrelevant, the college students would go, hey, man, let's go. And they would leave. So I realized when I spoke, I had an 18 to 22 minute window and I better make the case. Otherwise, we lose the chance to connect with these students because they leave the meeting early. I said, Mom and Dad, it was a lot harder. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, actually it was, but I'm not going to argue with you. Church people just won't come back the next Sunday. These people would just leave. What's my point? They weren't going to value my time with that mission, even though it trained it is where I received training to do something of which they approved. Your family may not approve of you missing something or being late for something because you go to a church service. Your family may not approve when you need to family, move that family event because I've got a small group. Hopefully we can do a both and. But there may be times that you're just going to have to live without their approval. Because God is calling you to something else. We, song, we sang a song about the, the faithfulness of God. The, the first song, I'm so glad I did those 15 years. with. I am so glad. I am who I am because of those 15 years with Campus Crusade. I'm glad I didn't let my family disapproval dissuade me from doing that. So we talked about personal stuff. We talked about family. It reorders family. How else might God affect our priorities? It might redefine what you think is a good time. So... Four or five times a week, I exercise with some people. And this is a 35 to 55 crowd. And so I, I don't participate necessarily, but I listen in on conversation. I'm amazed at the way these people talk about the way they drink. And I'm not talking about one drink here. I'm talking about drinking to the point of intoxication. I feel like I'm back in college again. Apparently, they feel like they need that much alcohol to have a good time. And I think we're here doing burpees and we're here doing lunges and we're here doing squats. And I just seems, it seems like that's counterproductive. That's a lot more calories, but that's kind of beside the point. <laughs> but God may take your understanding of a good time and reshape it and mold it to something that's very different from our culture. God may take your priorities in purchases and the way you use your money. We had friends who went to buy a house and their realtor said, you can afford more house. And they said, we don't need more house. We need this, this will work, but you can afford more, but we don't need more. They said, that's more house to, to clean and that's more house to heat and cool. This will do. Blew the realtor's mind. Just because I can afford it doesn't mean I need it. When we went to buy our first house, the lady, the, the banker asked us, do you have any, uh, do any debt? No, we have no debt. No, no debt. She said, no, no debt. Uh, 
She said, what about your cars? No, we, we bought older cars and our kind of principle was we're not going to take debt on a depreciating asset, so we drive older cars, but we weren't in debt. And now am I saying if you have a car loan, I'm down? No, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying biblical priorities. We're driving how we use our money. God is going to get in your business, okay? If you get serious with him, he's going to get in your business and he's going to mess with your priorities. Let me tell you this. When we align our priorities with God, it allows us to live fullness of life. He promises abundance of life. That is when we line our priorities up with him. And we talk about being Christ in our community and honoring him. As our priorities line up with him, we're most likely and most positioned to honor him. As we go back to our passage, um, verse 35, 38, Jonathan speaks in coded language. Verse 39 and 40 says, the lad was not aware of anything. Only Jonathan and David knew about the matter. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to the lad and said to him, go, bring them into the city. So that leads Jonathan and David to meet, which they do in verses 41 and 42. When the lad was gone, David rose from the south side and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the more. Jonathan said to David, go in safety inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord will be between me and you, between my descendants and your descendants forever. Then he rose and departed while Jonathan went in to the city. And so David goes. He's got the message. You need to go because Saul's after you. And the story is to be continued for the next six or so weeks. We will see Saul trying to end David's life, and we will see the faithfulness of God sustain David. You know, when we talk about um, God changing our priorities, it's because we're in a relationship with him. And relationships do that. They change our priorities. And perhaps for me, on a human level, nothing changed my priorities like having kids. So when Hope and I went overseas, Campus Crusade required that you have um, life insurance in case something happened to you. So we did the minimum. I don't know, I think we had 10,000 on us, something like that. But when we found out our first pregnancy is going to go, we upped our life insurance. Money was tight. But that was something we wanted to do because this kid and caring for him was a priority. Later, we had both sons, both participated in the Taekwondo, and it was a Saturday, and they were testing. And both boys knew that on Saturday afternoons, there's a game I like to watch. And so one of them said, well, are you going to go because you've got your game? And I said, son, there was no way I would miss your testing for a game. But, but you always watch that game, not when it comes to one of your events. Why would I give up? Because there was a higher priority. There was a relationship that demanded things. If that's true on a human level, how much more with the creator God? How will following God impact our priorities? It's going to shake them up, folks. <laughs> it's going to reorder them. And as we align our priorities with God, we'll see we live life in the full and we maximize our honor of Him. We're going to move to a time of communion now. So if you're a person or a couple leading a table, if you would go to that table, that would be great. Um, here's the deal. You do not have to be a member of this church to participate in communion. We just ask that you be a follower of Jesus. If you're not sure what that means, please feel free to sit and observe. Um, after I pray, I will just ask us to break down by sections. This section, if you go here to the t various tables, uh, 
your table leader or leaders will lead you through this. Uh, we have gluten-free up here if you, if you need that. And also, if you're a person who feels like, you know, i just standing up there that long, I just don't feel comfortable, our, our ushers, as they come up, will have communion elements. If you just slip your hand up, they'll give it, and you can take communion right there where you sit. We don't be, believe this becomes a little old body and blood of Jesus. This is a memorial. We're remembering this one who reordered his priorities that we could be in relationship with God. We've come to celebrate him. Let me pray, and we'll uh, enjoy communion together. Our Father in heaven, we're grateful that you are the risen Lord, uh, that you showed us what it means to reorder priorities. Father, we got our own deal. We got our own ways, and sometimes it's hard to give up. We hold on tight. But Holy Spirit, would you come in, and would you convince us on a personal level that what you want to do is for our best and your glory? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.